whoa, wait a minute. A second episode? Is this consistency? What's going on here? Something's off. Hi, I'm Ben Warnski. And before we get into today's topic, I wanted to thank everyone for listening to episode one. When I say I didn't expect the response it got, it's not because I didn't expect to get so many texts, Instagram DMs, internet fame, or text from my mom that read, quote, Siri, send Ben a text. Oh no, thanks, I brought my own grocery shopping bag, exclamation point, backspace period, thumbs up. Wait, stop. It's because I didn't expect 71% of my followers to be blinded by their outdated interpretations of sandwiches. Even more so, and I think this was the real shocker, there are way more Arby's defenders out there than I thought. And I think several people didn't even get to the meat and potatoes of the podcast because they were so turned away by my Arby's opinion. To those people, I like to double down on my stance because Arby's is terrible, their fries are good, but I would choose any fast food before them. But please keep listening, thanks. If you're new here and have no idea what I'm talking about, but have a strong opinion on what constitutes the proper construction of a sandwich, I'd recommend going to check out episode one, Is a Hot Dog a Sandwich? To all the rest of you that are still here, I'd like to welcome you to episode two of I Know What You're Thinking. If there's uno thing you need to know about me, it's that I go to the gym a maximum of three times a month. No big deal. What's that? My maximum bench? I don't want to monopolize these debates and turn this into gym talk, but I benched 115 for five yesterday. <clears throat> it is a casual flex. Sorry. Pretty proud of it. The second thing you'd want to know is how much I like board games, Yahtzee. And if you've ever talked to me for any length of time, you'd probably realize I can barely go a sentence without mentioning the name of one. Rummy Cube. One thing that most board games have in common is a rule book. It is a staple of any good game and oftentimes can be the instant deciding factor on how much I'm going to enjoy a game. If the rulebook looks like War and Peace, the post-reformed Russian novel by the author Leo Tolstoy following the French invasion of Russia and the impact of the Napoleonic era through the lens of five aristocratic Russian families, I'm likely going to put it back in its dusty 1869 package whence it came. If the rulebook is a one-page diagram using two syllable words or less, now we're talking. Some games don't even come with instructions. They figure if you bought the game and you don't know how to use it, it's already too late for you. Scrabble, checkers, boggle, to name a few. Some of you may not know what boggle is, but I promise, don't sue me LeBron James, if you looked at the board, you could figure it out. Even more interesting to me is that games come with rules, people completely ignore them sometimes. The most brazen of this bunch will go as far as to tweet these brands on Twitter to chirp at them for not understanding the game that these accounts themselves created. That's why today I want to talk about games. But more importantly, I want to talk about the widely practiced, often misinterpreted, and always controversial piece, House Rules. The very simple definition of a house rule is right there in the name itself. It is a rule that is used only in the house where the game is being played. They are set, as the name would imply, by the persons who are hosting the game night. House Rules should be defined prior to the game starting, as to not suddenly shift later when the homeowner's losing and suddenly it's, oh, actually when you're one turn away from winning, you have to take a 10 minute hiatus to do your chores because we've been asking you to do them all day and I don't know how to use a lawnmower because I'm only 12 isn't a good excuse anymore. Then when you've finally done the chores and come back, we've already packed up the game because thought we were done and got tired in the meantime. <clears throat> Sorry. I'm not sure what came over me there for a second. I hold no resentment over Rattasack Cat Game played in 2010 where I was gypped of an easy victory by House Rules. Back to the matter at hand. I want to talk about two games specifically that I think have the most variance in house rules and can drastically change the way this game is played depending on where you were raised. I know what you're thinking. What two games could possibly vary that much from household to household? I'll give you two guesses. The first option. A card game created in 1971 by the Barbara Merle Robbins from Reading, Ohio, 
based off a dispute he had with his family about how to play an even older card game called Crazy Eights. What Merrill did is he wrote the rules for Crazy Eights on the deck of playing cards and realized that it was so successful that he could turn it into a card game. What Merle and his wife did is they actually sold their house in order to spend $8,000 to have 5,000 copies of the game made. He sold it from his barbershop at first, and the local businesses around him began to sell it as well. He later sold this after traveling around and kind of showing it off to people in local communities. He eventually sold it to one of his friends named Robert Tezak, Tezak who was a funeral parlor owner in Illinois for $50,000 plus royalties of 10 cents per game. Tezak then formed International Games and had the offices right behind his funeral shop where he ran this production house from. Then later in 1992, which I'll touch on later, International Games, the place that Tezak ran, became part of the Maddle family of companies. This game in 2017 eventually became the number one selling card game in the world. In 2017, the company released a game designed specifically for those suffering from colorblindness. In 2019, the company released a braille version of the game of which the president of the National Federation of the Blind said, quote, the fact that a blind person is now able to play the classic game straight out of the box with both blind and sighted friends or family members is a truly meaningful moment for our community. A mobile version of this game even won the 2020 Best of Galaxy Store Award for Best Casual Game, according to Samsung. The other one is Beer Pong. And while Beer Pong may not have the historical status that the other game that I'm mentioning, which a lot of you probably have figured out by now what that is, it may not have that same historical significance that the other game has. That doesn't make this game any less disputable by people all over the country, and that's why I'm going to touch on it very briefly. I think that I can summarize a lot of my thoughts on this game in a much more brief manner than I can for the other one. So, Beer Pong, House Rules, what are we thinking? The first is how many cups are we playing? How many people are playing at a time? Some people like to play 21 cup. Some people like to play 10 cups. Some people like to play seven cup. There's a whole bunch of different cups you can play with. There's a whole bunch of different cup racks that you can do. Personally, I like 10 cup the best because I think it provides a nice balance between the time that it takes to complete the game and the amount of skill required to win the game. If you only play with three cups, yes, the games are shorter, but also, I mean, I could hit three cups in the game on accident every hundredth game or so, and you don't want me winning these kind of games. I promise that I'm not good enough, not nearly good enough to be winning on a consistent basis as I think that I could if we're only playing three cup. The second thing you want to talk about is how do re-racks work and how do rebuttals work. And in order to do that, you would probably want to define what re-racks and what a rebuttal is. For those of you who don't play Pong at all, a re-rack is where you take the cups and you change that configuration into something that you think you could hit more easily. For example, if you're down to your last three or four cups left and they're all spread over the table, you could call a diamond, you could call a triangle, a stoplight. There's so many different names and that is actually colloquial as in um, some people call it a skateboard, some people call it a zipper, some people call it a 3-2 and that's different types of names for different re-racks that you can call. That's one. A rebuttal. A rebuttal is something that you would shoot if your team has lost and you want an opportunity to send the game to overtime. The definition of rebuttal is not actually up for debate, although the rebuttal in practice I have recently learned is up for debate. I have always played that a team rebuttaling has to hit every single cup in order for that team to send the game into overtime. That's not everywhere. That's not the case everywhere. I've learned that some people play, you only need to hit one cup in order to make the rebuttal known, and basically you hit a cup, and that saves the last cup that the other team hit against you. 
I don't like that. Personally, I think that is a silly way to play and really rewards the bad teams. It kind of levels the playing field out, which I guess is if what you're going for, that's fine. I think that personally for me, I would prefer the games just to end quicker. And so I don't want to keep the good players playing bad players or keep the good players playing the same people. Um, I don't want to keep the same group of four on the table just because this these bad people happen to hit one lucky shot every 30th turn. And that happens to be the time uh, that the good players hit their cup to win the game or quote unquote win the game. And then we have to go back and do this rebuttal. I just think that the the way that rebuttal should be set up is to make it very difficult for the losing team to catch up. I just think that makes sense to me, but maybe that's not everyone thinking that way. Now on to the question of re-racks. Where I'm from, what I normally do is that every person gets one re-rack per game, no matter what, and every team always gets rebuttal. I've heard a lot of different talk about this, and which is what, why I kind of sparked this interest in my mind, what piqued my interest is, why do people only give rebuttals to the team if you didn't re-rack and you lost? I can see why you'd play this way as it speeds up the games and kind of helps teams if you, or it, it benefits teams, rewards them if they keep, they play a game straight up, which I respect. I just personally never played that way and therefore it's kind of a foreign concept. The last thing I wanted to touch on before I move on to the much longer topic, this is going to kind of a brief interlude before we get into the meat of this whole podcast or this episode, is I wanted to speak about what you guys do if you hit no cups during a game. Obviously, you guys are all elite Pong players and this would never happen. But what happens if you do? Do you do a naked lap? Do you have to pay a troll tax? Do you have to do a combination of the two? Some of you are probably asking to yourselves, what is a troll tax? Well, a troll tax is where you have to pay the tax to the trolls. Where do trolls sit? Underneath the bridge. And so therefore, for the entirety of the next game, if you hit zero cups, you have to sit underneath the table while other people enjoy themselves. Have any weird rules or rules that you think that are normal that I didn't even touch on? Don't be a stranger. Reach out to me at the Ben Zone on all social platforms. Now back to our second game. That's right. Of course I'm talking about Uno. The card game has produced by Mattel since it was sold to the toy manufacturer in 1992. To date, there have been 472 variations of the original Uno game, with 12 spin-offs produced so far in 2021. My favorite of those produced this year is the iconic series, 80s themed specifically. 472 variations would be far too many to cover in a single episode, but by golly am I going to try. Kidding. Unless. While I only own one Uno set myself and it's just an original version without a box and honestly it's in pretty pitiful shape, there are people out there who take Uno collecting seriously, with the largest collection being owned by one David Mora. David has over 165 decks and is trying to collect them all Ash Ketchum style. While the Guinness Book of World Records won't officially give David the title for the large collection of Uno decks because they claim that he must have over a thousand decks to be considered, Keep in mind, there's only 472 variations, so that just wouldn't make any sense. In my mind, David Moore is a hero and should be treated as such. An editorial note here, what I should have said is that David is the largest single collector of Uno cards, as there are a cousin and a husband and wife who actually have more combined collections. I think the cousins have around 200 cards, uh, card decks of Uno, and the husband and wife, I believe, have 327, which is actually the largest, at least that I can find online. But I will keep that other part in about David because I think it's so impressive that one person did all that. Now, picture this. Without thinking too hard on it, how many cards come in an original Uno deck? I'll set the over-under at 85. Okay, you have a 50-50 shot here. It shouldn't take you too long. If you said 75 and under, you'd be wrong on both accounts. If you said over and 108, that would be correct. Most Uno card decks have 108 cards, but recently and largely based 
unpopular demand, decks have begun shipping with 112 cards because they added cards with special properties that people were already incorporating into their house rules anyways. Some examples of these special cards include the Fashion Trend Wild Card from Barbie Uno that came out in 2010, Special Agent Mater Wild Card from the Cars 2 Uno Collection, and who could forget the Harvest Wild Card from the John Deere Uno Collection. Now that I've rambled on for too long about Uno's backstory, let's talk about how house rules come into play with a seemingly straightforward game. If you're one of the five people on this planet who have never played Uno, let me break it down for you real quick. At heart, Uno is a hand management game where you want to be the first person in the game to get rid of all of your cards. Standard decks have four different colors, ranging from 0 to 9, draw 2s, skips, reverses, a wild card, and the dreaded draw 4. In something I personally never knew, Uno suggests playing a rummy-like scoring system where the first person to lay down their hand adds up the card of everyone else's hands and plays to 500. Number of cards are worth the values on the cards, skips, reverses, and draw 2s are worth 20, the wild card and the dreaded draw 4 are each worth 50. Personally, I have never played this way and therefore will immediately throw it out of my house rules best way to play Uno set. The second thing to consider when setting Uno house rules is if you'd like to allow stacking and training or have no fun at all. Neither stacking nor training is approved by the official Uno rule set, but the practice has become so commonplace I feel it is only time before it gets added into at least the variation section. What stacking does is turn the game of Uno from a boring snooze fest into a game that actually has some sort of element of strategy to it. If the player before me places down a draw two, according to Uno, I am obligated to suck it up and take those two cards on the chin, and there's nothing I can do about it. Under the more fun, I'd go as far to say the correct way, to play, if somebody plays a draw two and I have another draw two in my hand, I can stack my card and pass a draw four to the person beside me who needs to have another draw two in order not to draw four. There's an even more punishing variation of the stacking rule where a player on the receiving end of the dreaded draw four, after the color is called, can use a draw two of the named color to give a draw six to the person next to them. I personally don't play this way as I like the satisfaction of the draw four's landing, but to each their own. The official Uno channel, at Real Uno Game on Twitter, tweeted about this on May 4th, 2019, saying, quote, if Sony puts down a draw four card, you must draw four and your turn is skipped. You can't put down a draw two and make the next person draw six. We know you've tried it. This tweet has 91,000 retweets and 5,800 replies, and nearly all of those consist of people explaining to Uno why the creators of the game don't know their own game. People would give Uno scenarios about why stacking rules acceptable and why training is good, and Uno would simply respond, no, amazing. Stick to your guns, Uno Social. Stick to your guns. Training is another variation that I personally don't play with often, but of course would respect if the host wishes. Training allows a player to play multiple cards at the same time, if they are all the same number. So if I have three sevens in my hand, all different colors, and a seven is played, I can play all three of my sevens in one go. What I like about this rule is that it allows games to go by much quicker, but I think it actually adds too much variation to games and causes too much confusion. A rule I do like is that if you have the same color and number as the card just played, so if a yellow seven is played and I have a yellow seven in my hand, I can jump in and play the same card even if I wasn't next in the turn order. I like this rule because it forces players to keep on their toes as much as one can be during an Uno game and not be buried in their phones or in the Easter buffet. Two final notes. To maximize chaos, I like to play that you can play a draw four even if you have another legal move, which is technically not allowed by the official Uno rules. But oh, you've been skipping me the past two turns? Eat this draw four. Actively working against me this game? What's the square root of 16? Draw four. You won the last game and this is the first turn of the next? Looks like you're starting with an extra four cards. Finally, the Uno. The whole reason for this game, the name of the game, its namesake. As soon as that second to last card leaves your hand, you better be saying Uno. If not, you're getting banished to the Shadow Realm. No debates, I don't want to hear it. You don't get to settle back in your seat and wait until right before the next person's turn. Nope, not today, not in this house. Picture this. You come to my house. 
we'd immediately sit down at the designated Uno table because I have money like that. These are the rules that we're playing. We're allowing stacks on draw twos, skips, reverses, etc. If you have the exact card that someone played, you can jump in, and Unos must be called immediately upon laying down your card. Additionally, when you have to pick up a card from the center because you have no cards in your hands that you can play, you have to keep drawing until you find a playable card. None of this pansy just pick up one card and move on. What is that? If we've been playing for a while, you could talk me into adding that if you play a zero, you can choose someone's hand to swap with your own, but that's only for really trying to spice things up. Agree with me? Disagree with me? Do you play Uno differently, aka incorrectly? Want to find out more about all the different types of Uno? Check out UnoVariations.com for the most complete list of Uno sets I've ever seen, along with a bunch of other information I didn't have time to fit in. Come back next time when I will try and convince you, you know what? I don't want to spoil it. You'll have to find out when you tune in to episode 3 of I Know What You're Thinking. <laughs>